This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Wait, wait, that's that's not my usual theme song. That's Old Lang Syne, the New Year's classic melody. This rendition by a band called Wooden Ships? Huh. Jeez. This version sounds almost like taps. Like it's a funeral. I mean... I know a lot of Democrats in Virginia are feeling deflated after November's elections, but it's not like the party actually died. Ah, that's better. So this week on Bold Dominion, we're looking back at 2021. It's a year that has felt really disorienting, to me anyway. We got vaccinated, we shook our heads at people who wouldn't get their shots, we felt some hope for returning to normal life. And then we had new uncertainties, new setbacks. First Delta, now Omicron. Uh, There's only 24 letters in the Greek alphabet, we're already on the 15th. But anyway. Meanwhile, in state politics, I'm not sure how to sum things up. I don't have a pithy phrase or a simple hot take. We started the year with Trumpists attempting a coup against the United States. Over the course of the year, many Virginia statues of Confederate traitors to the United States came down. And near the end of the year, Republicans swept statewide elections, in no small part campaigning on racial dog whistles. Maybe we should play taps. But it's not that simple. This year, Virginia's General Assembly got to work moving the Old Dominion's conservative politics towards a centrist place, or maybe even a little left of center. And just this week, Virginia's Supreme Court gave us all a belated Christmas present. New district maps for Virginia's House of Delegates, State Senate, and U.S. Congressional Districts. And honestly, all in all, the maps aren't terrible. We're kicking off this Year in Review episode with Sally Hudson. She represents the Charlottesville area in Virginia's House of Delegates. Back in March, she talked with us about what the General Assembly accomplished during its 2021 session. We ended the death penalty in the former capital of the Confederacy, in a state that has executed more people than almost any other. We passed major expungement reform in the Clean Slate Act that will, for the first time, give people with prior convictions an opportunity to close those records so that they no longer face barriers in housing and employment and credit. Um, And of course, we laid down the tracks to legalize cannabis possession here in Virginia. So just on the criminal justice front alone, huge steps. Uh, What were some of your priorities in the session and how did they fare overall? One of my top priorities for the session was to work on unemployment insurance reform because it was the number one reason that constituents called me last year. We had one in six Virginians get laid off and apply for unemployment at some time in the last year. And so a lot of people found themselves navigating a very broken system. And so we did some important things to try to make that system better in the short run. Um, One is that we made it easier for the VEC to contact people via phone and email so that they will no longer be exchanging letters, which they had to by law. Um, We made sure that going forward, no one will be cut off from their benefits once they start flowing without a hearing, because we heard from so many people who started getting payments and then they stopped without warning and they were just left in limbo for months And they'd finally get to the end of the line and have a hearing and wrap up some small misunderstanding with the state data in a day or so. And so that was really a due process violation for those people to have to wait without a hearing. And so we ensured that that won't happen anymore. Um, And I I also carried a measure that will 
forgive overpaid unemployment benefits to a lot of workers who got them by mistake. Uh, in the very early days of COVID, when the rules around unemployment at the state and federal level were changing so fast, lots of people applied in good faith and then found out months after they got paid that for some reason they weren't eligible and they long since spent the money on rent and gas and groceries. And so you have people who, many of whom were not working super highly paid jobs to begin with, um, find themselves facing a, a debt collection letter for the state. Um, because the state made a mistake and they paid money that they thought was rightly theirs. Uh, and so we'll be waiving close to $20 million in debt for people who found themselves in that position because they, they don't have the capacity to pay back. So the campaign finance bill uh, or reform bill, I mean, what, what happened with that and what can we do going forward? Sure. So I, I think campaign finance reform is a good example of an issue where both the House and Senate still have room to grow. There's a lot of ways that Virginia is the wild, wild west of campaign finance. We have no ban on corporate contributions. We have no ban on the personal use of campaign funds. We have unlimited contributions from any donors. And so there's a lot of work to do for comprehensive campaign finance reform in the Commonwealth. The only real step we took this year was to agree to study it one more time. So Delegate Bolivar for the Fairfax area carried a bill that will convene a study around campaign finance reform uh, in the coming year. Now, we have many studies just like that already sitting on the shelf that tell us what's wrong with Virginia's campaign finance system. Granted, there's always more to learn and, and more wrinkles to discuss, but there are some few, a few low-hanging fruit that we had hoped would pass this session, in particular, a ban on personal use of campaign funds, which is so very rare um, to Virginia. But the, the Senate was not willing to do that this year. Um, and so that one died there. I think that there's still a lot of things, I think, about good governance reform and the relationship between government and business that um, will require a pretty big culture change in the other chamber before we can make headway. Sally Hudson represents the 57th District in Virginia's House of Delegates. And I think Sally's last answer points to something bigger, the notion of a culture change not just in Virginia's state Senate, but in Virginia as a whole. In 2020, Virginia voted for Biden over Trump by 10 points. But to me, that vote wasn't really driven by a culture change. It wasn't driven by a sudden turn toward progressivism. Virginia voters didn't suddenly embrace Bernie Sanders and AOC in mass. There are progressives here, of course. There, of course there are. But it's not the median. Not yet. Virginia's political values tend more toward stability, toward politeness. And if we're being honest, Virginia tends toward deference to the wealthy. And Donald Trump, well, he may be rich, but he's truly odious. Virginians voted against Trump's personality and his style of governance as much as anything else. Just months after that vote, Virginia Democrats chose the most establishment Democrat they could find as their nominee for governor, Terry McAuliffe. Friend of Bill and Hillary Clinton, major fundraiser for National Democrats, former governor of Virginia who just barely beat Ken Cuccinelli in 2013. In June, I talked with Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska. Even though we've talked about kind of like the old Virginia way not being the dominant thing like it used to be, there's still a lot of that, let's kind of get along and not veer too far from whatever the middle happens to be right now. I mean, yeah. is, that, is that accurate? I think that's true. Um, although I do think in Virginia that it's changing the idea, if you want to call it a conceit, that we're Virginia gentlemen and gentlewomen is kind of falling away because of, you know, people from other 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 parts of the United States and other countries are coming in. They're not necessarily rude people at all, 
but they're just they don't buy they're just not they don't know that experience that kind of you know idea that you know we're supposed to be nice people and i'm not saying they're not but that's kind of i think over time that's dying away and it used to infuriate me because i mean you know i worked in new york too and i mean in virginia they would smile and stab you in the back in New York, they'd frown and stab you in the chest. So, you know, <laughs> that's what it is. But in, in many ways, I preferred New York because at least I know where I stand. Right, right. You know, I was talking with uh, Jeff Thomas uh, last summer, author of The Virginia Way, Democracy yeah. in Power after 2016. And his take on, on some of this is that, yeah, those old family dynasties in Virginia where like the Virginia gentlemen, the Virginia gentlewomen and the, the sort of personal relationship gets everything done. Some of that has eroded away for sure. Um, um, and now it's money and there's newcomers and the way you play the game is with money. Um, and so I'm kind of struck by that as a change in the political culture here, but it still seems to veer really hard toward uh, – like a sensibility that Virginia doesn't want to be the first on anything, but they're also, it would be impolite to be the last on anything. Well, Virginia runs sort of in the middle. I mean, but I do think that there are some things where Virginia vis-a-vis the South is ahead, such as marijuana, uh, decriminalization, and getting rid of the death penalty. And that that's where Virginia's moving, that kind of area. It's not going to be, it used to be like the, you know, political museum piece, as a famous historian put it, where it's sort of, <laughs> You know, it's changed. I mean, that was written, what, 60, 70 years ago? So. Peter Galaska is a longtime journalist here in Virginia and regular guest here on the show. You've probably heard his voice. Well, as the summer wore on, the gubernatorial race between Glenn Youngkin and Terry McAuliffe heated up. In the national media, we kept hearing a term being bandied around, critical race theory. Critical race theory has become a pejorative in today's conservative movement, including here in Virginia. In several Virginia counties, school systems have been trying to educate children about the history of systemic racism in the United States. Critical race theory has been leveled as an accusation against these efforts. Well, back in July, here on Bold Dominion, we looked into how critical race theory became the newest right-wing boogeyman. Ian Mullins is a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. There are indications that this will be a trend in how debates occur in the immediate future, that... They will happen in a fragmented way where partisans with different allegiances will discuss different issues. They'll demonize their opponents on the opposite side, but they're not really going to interact with one another. And in this particular issue of critical race theory, there's not much substance to it. That doesn't mean other issues won't have substance. But the idea that is being perpetrated among critics of critical race theory is not what critical race theory is. Their perception of it doesn't match its reality. And in that sense, critical race theory has become a symbol for something other than what it is, for a fragmented segment of the population. It's become a dog whistle. It's become a way to activate voters in a knee-jerk way without getting into a substantive discussion. So I do not think that leaders of their respective political parties in Virginia are going to have a substantive conversation about this. I also don't think that's what it's intended to accomplish. I think this is a tactic to activate a Republican base and a specifically a Republican base that can be energized and activated around what we're calling cultural issues. It's not this threat to the American way of life. It's not a threat to children. 
And so in Virginia, in Loudoun County, just I don't think we're going to have productive conversations about this because we can't agree on what it fundamentally is. As it happened, UVA professor Ian Mullins was spot on with his analysis. Stay with us through this short break. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to get into state politics? Well, tell them about this show, and then subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. While you're there, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. We love those. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. So as Virginia's gubernatorial campaign wore on through the summer and the fall, Republicans hammered on critical race theory over and over and over. Terry McAuliffe fell right into their trap. In October, he remarked, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Republicans pounced. They turned that remark into a cudgel, and they used it to activate voters in a way Virginia has never seen before. For perspective, four years ago, Republican Ed Gillespie got almost 1.2 million votes. This year, Republican Glenn Youngkin got almost 1.7 million votes. That's a difference of nearly half a million votes. In other words, Glenn Youngkin's vote count was more than 40% higher than the last Republican who ran for governor. It's not that Democrats skipped out on voting for McAuliffe. He actually got a lot more votes than Ralph Northam did four years ago. But Glenn Youngkin got a lot more votes than four years ago, and he ended up beating McAuliffe by about two percentage points. Why did that happen? How did McAuliffe lose when he was supposed to be the Democrats' safe choice? The day after the election, I talked with the hosts of Transition Virginia, Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman. Former Bold Dominion producer Arian Ballou and current producer Catherine Hansen also joined us. I see two big flaws in Terry's campaign strategy. One, he didn't give Democrats a reason to come out and vote for him specifically. And related to that, everything he did in his advertisements mentioned Glenn Youngkin by name, which is a huge no, no. You know, this is not my assertion. This is Campaign Basics 101. You never mention your opponent by name. And what he ended up doing is doing all of Glenn's work for him, tying him to the base, defining him as a base candidate, which meant that Glenn was free to just go after independents and moderates. Totally, totally agreed. Uh, it seemed, I mean, Terry McAuliffe, didn't provide an affirmative position when Yunkin did, even if those positions are are things I don't find good, like uh, sort of the the railing against critical race theory, charter schools, a lot of stuff that focused on uh, children, which is uh, worth diving into as as well. Um, but it got people excited to vote in a way that uh, McAuliffe didn't, and the Trump thing was a play that absolutely didn't work. Uh, so Thomas said. He didn't really give voters a reason to vote for McAuliffe other than Trump. And I, I mean, certainly agree that that's how people perceived it. Um, I will say that the McAuliffe campaign did try 
to make the argument about increasing the minimum wage and paid sick leave and family and medical leave and hazard pay. And you did hear McAuliffe talk about that quite a lot on the campaign trail that did not pierce through to voters. He actually did have a message out there somewhere, but it got lost in all this talk about Trump. What he didn't get to do was frame everything the way he wanted to frame it, because as soon as he said uh, that parents shouldn't have a say in their child's education, it riled up a lot of parents who didn't understand the nuance of that. And, uh, you know, Glenn capitalized on it. And education is always one of the top three issues in state politics. And Democrats are super, super upset that they feel like Republicans stole their issue. You know, when I was I was at the Democratic event out in McLean, and that was kind of the theme of the night was, hey, wait a minute, education's our issue. How did they end up winning on education? That's because it wasn't really education is the issue, Michael. It, it, it was, this wasn't about funding for schools. It was a story about race, right? Well, yes and no. So you said it's not necessarily about funding for schools. Keep in mind that in Glenn Youngkin's victory speech, he did promise the largest ever education budget in the history of Virginia. He promised to expand school choice by having more charter schools. Dog whistle. So, I mean, there is a policy dimension to this, too. I mean, I, people got caught up in the in the racial element of it and banning a law school concept from public schools that's not taught there. So, I mean, it's easy to ban something that's not being taught. It was a meaningless discussion about a topic that had no policy dimension to it. But when Yunkin actually takes office, he does. There are some policies there that he's going to pursue, or at least he's promising to in his victory speech. So, Michael, here's the thing, though. Like, like more money for charter schools in Virginia did not drive half a million people to vote for Glenn Yunkin. Fear about teaching black authors and fear about, about trans bathrooms, fear about uh, all the stuff that leads to aggrieved white suburbanites turning out to the polls, that's what drove half a million more people to vote for Glenn Youngkin. Well, well, well wait a second. I, w- I would agree with you that the, all of the dust up about Toni Morrison definitely drove a lot of voters. I'm not distracting from that. Although uh, you say the, the charter schools didn't really drive parents. Uh, and maybe that's true. But keep in mind the perception uh, in the minds of voters to hearing Terry McAuliffe said, say he didn't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And there was this, this feeling among many parents that those Democrats and their big government bureaucrats and all this wokeism is sort of dominating schools. And, you know, there's the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates, and they want more control. The parents want more control. Mm-hmm. School choice is a dog whistle. Like, it's a race dog whistle. The reason that they advance school choice is so that they don't have to send their kids to integrated schools. This has been a talking point since the Brown v. Board decision. This is not new information. School choice is a racist dog whistle. And so the fact that it's in Yunkin's uh, list of promises is just one more reason tying Yunkin's education plan to a racist dog whistle reaction. That was Michael Pope and Thomas Bowman, the hosts of Transition Virginia, joining me and Aryan Ballou and Catherine Hansen for a roundtable conversation the day after the election. So Republicans won the governorship and statewide offices. They also won a majority in the House of Delegates. But Democrats still have a narrow majority in the state Senate. So here at Bold Dominion, we got to wondering 
how much power Virginia's governor really has. Can the governor just issue a bunch of executive orders like the president does in Washington? What'll actually get done in the next couple of years? Bold Dominion producer Catherine Hansen interviewed UVA politics professor Justin Kirkland. So the Virginia governorship is a little unusual in that the Virginia governor does have strong veto powers. That is, they can veto legislation that comes from the legislative branch, and they have a line item veto, which means they can send specific recommendations back to the legislature. This is a relatively common power in governors, and the president had this power for a short amount of time. And what makes the governor in Virginia a little unusual amongst more institutionally powerful governors is that the Virginia governor can only serve one term at a time. And so that is a unique feature that when a governor vetoes a bill, there's not like an eight-year time horizon for them to negotiate with the legislature. They've got four years, two budgets to get things done, and that's the end of things. The Virginia governor also has some considerable budgetary power. Uh, Not all governors have the ability to propose a budget first. Oftentimes the First proposed budget comes from the legislature rather than from the governor, but in the state of Virginia, the governor gets to propose a budget that the legislature then debates and then changes. Interinstitutionally, the governor is also reasonably powerful in that the Virginia state legislature is a citizen or amateur legislature held by part-time legislators rather than a professional legislature like a place in California. And having a citizen or amateur legislature tends to make the governor stronger because policy typically emerges from professional politicians rather than from amateurs. And amateur legislators have less experience and less time to fight back against a governor that they might disagree with because they're only in session for 30 to 60 days every other year. So how can a governor's priorities impact various issues even without new legislation? Yeah, so the the, um, governors can, because they have those sort of proposal and budgetary powers, emphasize areas of administration more than a legislature can. So a legislature has got to pass law and then rely on an executive to implement it. So the governor can, you know, increase police presences by increasing funding for, you know, state police in in the Commonwealth or can change you know, higher education because they can increase or propose to increase funding to universities. Um, All of those proposal powers and all of those abilities to sort of move money around and tell executive agency heads what to do gives the governor a lot of ability to sort of, these are the things that are important to me, these are my priorities, and you don't actually have to wait for the legislature to pass anything to know what those priorities are. One particular issue raised on both sides during the campaign was you know, critical race theory and what we're going to do with our school board. So, you know, every county has its own school board. What is Glenn Youngkin or any governor able to do? Yeah, so the school board determines a lot of local curriculum. And for most of the 20th century, curriculums were controlled by local boards. Over time, thanks to a variety of state legislation and indeed national legislation like No Child Left Behind, uh, school boards have had decreasing amounts of authority over local curriculum. So a lot of curriculums in the country, in, and indeed here in Virginia, are at least on paper in the hands of local school boards, but because schools rely so heavily on states for funding rather than just local property taxes, that provides people like Youngkin the ability to manipulate local curriculums even if the final authority is vested in local school boards. And so it'll turn out to be the case that Youngkin has some power to make curriculum changes, not directly, but he can pressure school boards to make changes in the direction that he supports and threaten to withhold funding from those schools if they don't comply. That's a 
perfectly common and normal tactic that governors use to deal with school boards across the country. It's really common in Texas and in North Carolina, the places that I lived before Virginia. So there's nothing untoward about it. It's just a tool that a governor has to make school boards happen. Youngkin has also talked a lot about increasing teacher pay, and that is actually set pretty carefully by states because states fund so much of teacher education and they fund so much of what school boards are allowed to hire or fire or things like that. All that money comes directly from the state. And so that money can actually help bring in teachers of certain types, right, or, or have, encourage teachers of other types. Justin Kirkland is a professor of policy and politics at the University of Virginia. I'll be honest. Sometimes the machinations of electoral politics tire me out. Who gets elected matters. I know, I know. It's important. Government is the one peaceful means we have to sort out how we want to live together as a democratic society. But I also see how change happens outside of elections and outside of government. How a change in values can be more lasting, more meaningful, more impactful. It's social movements that move the needle on changing values. This year, Bold Dominion's most listened to episode was the one where we marked the four-year anniversary of the deadly Unite the Right rally here in Charlottesville. It's still a moment we mark time by, at least in Charlottesville, and it's shaped Virginia's politics and public spaces this year. A number of Virginia's statues to Confederate generals came down. In August, I talked with UVA professor Jelaine Schmidt. She used to co-lead tours of the Confederate monuments here in Charlottesville. These days, she's been doing a lot of interviews. The pretext, I don't even want to say precipitating, but the pretext, you know, for the, those folks who attacked our community was, you know, was the attempt to uh, take down a Confederate monument. You know what I mean? That is the community had, you know, made clear that our, this does not comport with our values. We need to move, you know, we, we need to move that thing out of here. And, you know, um, you know, so we were attacked because we tried to change. You know, we didn't want these symbols of white supremacy. Um, you know, and so then, you, you know, a couple of years later, I guess, you know, November 2019, the Democrats take over both houses of the General Assembly and, of course, already had the governorship. Um, and so a lot of us, you know, I, I didn't have a Thanksgiving, a Christmas or a New Year's, you know, and, and some other people, too. You know, we worked really hard to in the eight weeks between uh, 2019 election and the January 8 opening of the General Assembly in 2020, we worked really hard to get a statewide network together. It was, you know, Monumental Justice Virginia coalition uh, to lobby the state legislature, the, the, the General, General Assembly, to get that law changed mm -hmm. about uh, war memorials, you know. Um, you know, and I remember saying to, you know, to Kay Corey, I said, this is not theoretical for us. This is not an abstraction. There was literally blood spilled on our streets. People were killed. We need this. You know, and so we really used the full force of our moral pressure. Uh, uh, Sally Hudson really stepped up and wonderful allies in the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus, you know, who are also, you know, pushing this through. Um, you know, so it took a lot of work, mm -hmm. you know, in, in 2020 to, to get that bill passed. So the monuments around the state, like are many of them are down. There's still some smaller towns in Southside that have left their Confederate statues mm -hmm. up. But but a lot of these Confederate memorials have been taken down. Um they're gone what's it mean it means that at least uh, with our visible emblems in our public spaces that we uh, 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 do not recognize these uh, symbols as you know representative of our community and the sorts of values that we want to celebrate uh, we didn't remove history we changed who we commemorated you know we said this is not worthy of honor in our most visible public spaces 
you know, we're not going to forget these people. They're in the history books. We're going to teach about them, but we're going to reframe them within a liberatory narrative that privileges um, democratic principles and democratic struggles. It's not a small thing, you know. It's it's Virginia. Uh, saying, you know, we're not just the capital of the Confederacy. That was, you know, something that, you know, is, you know, uh, happened in the past. It's definitely, you know, p- part of our history. But this is, you know, we're more than that. You know, there's lots of uh, of residents here, of citizens here that are, you know, struggling for a new future. You know, the bold dominion, you know, if, if you will. And, and it's, fun, you know, in the, in the Monumental Justice uh, Virginia campaign, uh, we talked about a new dominion. You know, instead of the old dominion, it's yeah. like you know, what would it be? What would it look like to face forward? Bold dominion. You're just playing to the studio audience here. That's right. <laughs> you know, you and I have talked a number of times before, though, and and about how yeah, it was very partially about the statues, the mm-hmm. unite the right rally, and and all the issues around it. But I remember you using this phrase at the time, back in 2017, that this moment in Charlottesville kind of lanced the boil of a lot of things that had been papered over before. Mm-hmm. Um, what are those things? Where are we with some of those? Yeah, well, it, it was never just about the statues. The statues symbolized a lot of things that, that uh, you know, the statues were a visible manifestation of a lot of systemic things that weren't as obvious or at least weren't as obvious to folks in power. Let's put it that way. Kind of looking at how white supremacy is institutionalized, how it's built into uh, the systems, you know, that operate in our lives. I think it brought a um, magnifying glass on that and, a, and an opportunity. But there's a lot of systemic stuff that's still going on that we did not get victories on, such as trying to end qualified immunity for the police. And, uh, you know, here in, in Virginia, you know, we've got a case, uh, well, of, of young uh, Marcus David Peters, you know, in, 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 uh, in Richmond, a, you know, black man who was having a, you know, mental health episode. And, you know, and instead of you know, coming with a de-escalation strategy, especially when it comes to black folks, the police just <laughs> arrive, you know, guns blazing, you know, and that, and that you know, and he's dead. Uh, in Charlottesville, you know, we got the case of uh, Xavier Hill, you know, who was uh, killed by the, by the Virginia State Police, and we still haven't, don't have the body cam pictures of that. Um, you know, in terms of addressing systemic problems, why is there still qualified immunity for the police? here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. That, that, we did not notch a win on that. Activists did not, you know, in, in you know. Explain, pol- explain what qualified immunity means for anybody who might not be familiar with the term. Well, th- well, that police aren't held accountable for crimes, actual crimes that they're committing in, 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 the, in the course of their employment, in the course of, you know, carrying out their job. So here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, there was a push by activists to end uh, qualified immunity for the police. And, and this, this bill got quashed you know, at the, at the General Assembly. Uh, you know, so, so you know, we've notched a, a win, you know, for kind of the most obvious kind of visible symbols, you know, statues and getting them taken away. But there's, uh, there's some, um, you know, pernicious uh, systemic problems that have yet to be, you know, really fully addressed. What I talk about this, you know, with the, you know, people say, oh, congratulations, you know, I know you work so hard on this, you know, and, and, you know, now the monuments and now you're, you're done, right? And, and I, you know, with the, with the, since the monuments are gone, and I said, no, that is the end of the beginning, you know, and again, kind of hearkening back to Zion Bryant's statement in the park on, on July the 10th, that now we need to tackle these, these systemic, uh, you know, structural uh, ways that white supremacy is embedded in our daily life and has, you know, worked perniciously 
to dispossess, you know, black people of, of uh, uh, economic power. Jelaine Schmidt is a professor and director of the Memory Project at the University of Virginia. Well, that's the year of 2021, folks. We've got a Republican governor starting soon, a politically divided General Assembly, a pandemic that's still dragging on, and a whole lot to reckon with. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away. Bold Dominion will be back in the new year to explain how state government works or doesn't work when there are different parties with majorities in the House and the Senate. In the meantime, stay safe, get your booster shot, and have a happy new year.